This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's check in with uh, Abhay Deshpande. He is founder and chief investment officer of Centerstone Investors. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Abhay, great to have you back with us and an important day to have you with us, given what's going on in the markets. What are you seeing that really jumps out to you? You We said this to our colleague Joe Weisenthal earlier. What's the signal in the noise here? Um, I think one of the interesting things is how people are – very, uh, I think, late to party in terms of recognizing that there's been an industrial slowdown globally and certainly in the United States. Um, so, you know, the market being down as much as it is based on um, some of that noise is, is is a little surprising, but it's probably also, I mean, it's, it's just another piece of information in the mix of, um, in the mix right now. I mean, and then, of course, obviously, the impeachment thing is really driving, driving, the, show, driving the bus right now. Hmm. Uh, and is part, sorry I, to interrupt I, you, but is is yeah. impeachment you think sort of weighing on the on the markets at this point? You know, in as much as you know, you know, I think people are looking for excuses to not get reinvested or to avoid certain pockets of the market or or just um, you know stay on the sidelines. And this is just an excuse that that kind of justifies that decision to stay on the sideline, despite the fundamentals. The fundamentals, you know, as of now anyway, things are slowing down, but um, the uh, industrial segment of the economy in the United States is a fraction of the total uh, economy. Um, there's plenty of good stuff happening, too. Well, but, you know, Abe, what about something like uh, the transportation index, the Dow Jones transportation average? It's down more than 2% for the second straight day, that weaker than expected manufacturing and employment data, really raising questions about the health of the U.S. economy. It's down more than 5% for the biggest two-day slide in almost a year. We know transportation stocks rise and fall alongside the economic cycle. Is this important to you? Well, it's an important indicator about the odds of um – what is a um, sort of a sort a weakness in the industrial sector? Uh, I guess spreading to other sectors. I mean, it's in the in the past, uh, the industrial sector has uh, you know weakness there has coincided or led weakness in the rest of the economy. So I think you know as much as the uh, transports are leading, right. you look at Dow theory and whatnot. I mean, they didn't confirm uh, the highs, and as much as that's a signal, then that's something to be worried about. All right, Abe Dishpande, we appreciate your time. Well, let's check in on Business Week Economics. Let's do that. Alex Harris is here with us, bond reporter at Bloomberg News and our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Yelena Shaletyeva, senior U.S. economist at Bloomberg Economics. I want to go right to it because the reason we're seeing selling in the equity markets, although there's been some debate uh, on Twitter and other formats, but there is concerns about the economic outlook. So, Yelena, let me go first to you in terms of the economic data. How concerned should we about what it says and about maybe it being a more significant slowdown in the U.S. economy than maybe we've been talking about. So our view about the U.S. economy is that it will slow down significantly in the second half of the year. You know, there are a lot of headwinds. We 
constantly talk about them. Uh, one of the biggest drivers of a slowdown is uh, really consumer spending that is shifting down, but not to such a degree that it could be critical for economic growth overall. So we don't think, we don't see the economy going into uh, a significant slowdown or a recession anytime soon. In fact, uh, we just estimated uh, a new model on mm-hmm. the U.S. recession probability, and the indicator uh, that we came up with shows that well, the chances are about 25% that the economy will go into a recession in the next within the next 12 months. So this is uh, uh, higher than at the beginning of the year, but slightly lower than over this summer. It is also significantly lower than uh, the recession probability indicator uh, just before the Great Recession or the previous recession. So we are kind of seeing risks picking up, but right. not to such a critical degree that it will cause a recession. Alex Harris, come on in on uh, our conversation here. You watch the bond market. Is what we're seeing in terms of bond market moves commensurate with what we're seeing on the equity side of things? I think their focus is more on Fed and future Fed cuts because, again, when you have all this uncertainty continuing to weigh on the, the overall picture here, this is what the problem is. You know, Brexit's still an issue, you know, potential slowing global growth. I think the impeachment inquiry, while I don't think it's necessarily a very tradable event, I think it's just one of those things. You know, it's another uncertainty to add to the pile. And then, you know, not to mention, you know, trade wherever we are in that, because I'm still coming up from air from all the repo stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But these continue to weigh on the bond market, and I think you're seeing that reflected also in a bit of the Fed funds futures. And, you know, we have 21 basis points. Yeah, roughly priced in, you know, for the October meeting. And, you know, so that's something to take note of. And then Eurodollar futures traders are looking at potentially 75 basis points of cuts by the end of the year. So, you know, I think this is starting to foment in some of the outlook and the way people are trading this. And so, Yelena, let's look ahead 48 hours, less than 48 hours to Jobs Day. I mean, all eyes, it feels like, are on that figure. Uh, you're nodding and shaking your head. Agree, well, disagree? Agree and disagree. It depends, <laughs> right? The classical economist answer. So I think, yes, the headline number is always uh, an important one. And we uh, think that uh, we will continue to see a slowdown in momentum in hiring. But again, not to such a degree that it will cause the unemployment rate to go higher. So we actually expect the unemployment rate uh, to take down in this report. So another interesting detail, and I think that has become uh, ever increasingly more important than uh, in the uh, last reports, in the last several reports, is to uh, monitor how income growth is evolving. So if we will see income growth is decelerating, significantly decelerating, that will hurt consumer spending. And that's uh, the key drive of economic growth right now. It comes down to that, right? This is what we've been talking about, you know, um, ongoing. I do wonder, too, um, in terms of whether or not, when that sentiment starts to be problematic, like because we talk about certainly – the emotion within the market, it's right? And whether or not problem. people start to get... It's already a problem. You see business sentiment already, uh, you know, impacted hiring momentum. Uh, we did some analysis on that uh, front. And, uh, you know, in the beginning of the year, we saw a significant slowdown in the industries mm-hmm. affected by trade tensions, for example, manufacturing, construction, and so on. 
but uh, you see, uh, like more recently, you see broadening of the slowdown into other sectors of the economy, uh, even services sectors. So that means uncertainty is spreading into a broader uh, set of industries, and it's affecting a broader um, number of, of uh, you know, job places. All right. We're All right. There. We're going to leave it there. Uh, thank you both so much. A very busy day trying to look at all of this data coming at us amid all the rhetoric as well. Alex Harris, Bond reporter for Bloomberg, and Yelena Shalecheva, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. Because I've got the crazy game in you. I'm smooth hey, yo, like butter. It's like butter. So we're obviously watching the markets. Let's catch our breath for a second. And we're keeping an eye on the news out of Washington. Everything kind of fast and furious uh, in terms of the flow here. Uh, But we do want to talk about, because businesses are still moving on, making decisions, doing things. And yes, we're going to talk about butter, Irish butter, Kerry Gold. Yep. It's a thing. Uh, it's a big thing. In fact, in it's, your refrigerator, it's you in said. my refrigerator, and it's really conquering kitchens and refrigerators around the country. Can I just say, I you know lovingly referred to you as a snalt, a snalt, a salt snob uh, a few weeks ago. <laughs> I care are about you, my salt. Are you a, a butter snob as well? I'm even a bigger. I'm one. a bigger butter snob than uh, salt, salt snob. snob. All right, Elizabeth Dunn is a writer for Bloomberg Business Week. She joins us on the phone from New York City. I loved this story. It's about Carrie Gold. Tell us how. How this be- has become uh, such a hit, Elizabeth. Sure. Uh, so now for your butter interlude. From <laughs> exactly. Well said. Um, so Kerrygold butter uh, arrived in the U.S. 20 years ago, but really in the past 10 years or so, it started popping up, it seems like, everywhere. I mean, it's in most grocery stores that I go to. It's in my own fridge. And, um, you know, the reason why is that people, when you talk to people who eat Kerrygold, they say it has a better texture and a better flavor than the butters that they grew up on. And, you know, people have really become um, really loyal to this product. And I think also um, have become sort of unofficial spokespeople for the product. There's just a lot of sort of, um, I guess, brand ambassadorship happening um, from everyday people. So, um, so yeah, it's become it's an amazing success story for an imported well, butter brand. I have to say, I think I have three different kinds of butters in my <laughs> fridge, to be quite honest. But here we are, 20 years, I think, when they first shipped a bunch of butter to the United States. They're now America's second best-selling brand of butter. That's a big leap. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable, especially for a country. You know, the U.S. has an enormous dairy industry. It has a dairy industry that produces more than we consume domestically so that the idea that an imported butter would would become such a fixture in our in our dairy aisle I think is is pretty incredible. Well, and Elizabeth, you know, it's funny too because I feel like this speaks to some extent even if it's only perception to the premiumization to some extent that we see across so many uh, categories. It is at least packaged to feel like a little fancier, a little bit more almost like bespoke in terms of uh, butter. I do want to read one line, which I just loved that you wrote. Uh, This is your own description. The butter is canary yellow with a movie theater popcorn richness that verges on the addictive. And But people really are caring, Mm -hmm. caring more and more about this experience that they have with food and it feels like this company is capitalizing on it 
Yeah, so I, I was so impressed with the taste of the butter that I actually went to Ireland. I mean, granted, not from the U.S. I was somewhere closer by because I wanted to see what are they what are they doing differently? What makes the butter so good? And what I discovered from visiting a farm there and looking at their manufacturing process and also talking to um, some dairy science experts is that it really the difference is in their grass-fed dairy system. So this is just a characteristic of the Irish dairy industry that makes it very different from the U.S. Their cows all eat grass, and the butter is only made during the grazing season when the cows are eating the grass. And that changes the fat profile of the final butter and really accounts for a lot of the difference in, in both flavor and texture. Well, and that's what I wonder about, because we spend a lot of time talking about food and people care about the integrity of the food, right? How often or increasingly we're turning it around, checking out the ingredients uh, on a package and even more so, how does, um, you know, carry gold fit into that? Well, I think that they, you know, so so there's this difference in their in their process. The butter is very pure and natural, but they have also been very canny about the way they've approached marketing it here. They, when they brought it to the U.S., brought it only to Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and Costco because that was a place they thought, you know, it was sort of the affluent Americans would shop and find it. And they really invested in doing in-store tastings with Irish, their Irish employees so that the Irish, you know, they could sort of, I guess, that they could transmit that sense of, you know, the romance of Ireland and the sort of um, naturalness of the landscape and the wholesomeness of their family farm. And so who's the biggest threat to uh, carry gold, do you think, as as both a consumer and as someone who now knows this business better than any single human being I've ever met, by the way? <laughs> well, I think Organic Valley is doing a lot of really interesting things. Um, there, I believe, and I don't want to, don't quote me on this, but I believe the biggest producer of grass-fed dairy products in the U.S. Yeah. Um, they're certainly the ones that I see the most, and they are producing a grass-fed butter now. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really good. It, it um, you know, won Bon Appetit's taste test last year. And so I think that the U.S. grass-fed industry is really maturing. And so there are likely to be domestic competitors down the line. All right. It's one of my favorite stories in the magazine Love this it. week. Uh, really nice job reporting and writing it. Elizabeth Tunn, freelance writer for Bloomberg Business Week. She joined us on the phone from right here in New York City. But, you know, she did her reporting on this. For sure. How to go to Ireland. I'm a butter snob. How to I'm check saying it out. It. Yeah. I mean, just check out I the mean, butter shops. There's so many. I'm admitting it. <laughs> I am a butter snob. Different butter for different things. Yeah, no doubt about makes it. Makes sense. And salt. All right. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Can I just say, when we get into the early part of earnings season, this is one of my favorites to talk about because every time we talk about it I say, you know, I like going to Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> I go there a couple times a year and then Carol jumps in like and says, I, get, I don't even know what to do when I go in there. I can't I find anything. Sheets, I, I don't know how to get out. And Seema Shaw comes along and <laughs> she's <laughs> laughing at us, but then she tells us what's actually going on. Uh, she is here. She's our senior consumer analyst over at Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of our vast empire. Uh, so BBBY, what do you make of it? Well, I mean, I think uh, from a top line perspective, it didn't really improve. Comps were down 6.7%, which is a deceleration from the prior quarter. But it seems like they are making their way uh, 
through their initiatives, like they're writing down inventory, they laid off some people, they appear to be closer to getting a CEO. And from an investor perspective, they keep buying shares and they have a dividend. So I don't know that necessarily much has changed on the top line. Certainly the competitive environment hasn't changed and based on the economy, should it slow, it's only going to get worse. But I think you're seeing some improvement at least in uh, their operating structure. Because this is, a, I mean, this has been, I feel like this last several quarters that we've talked to you, mm-hmm. a, a turnaround story Perpetually. Again and yes. again and again, right? Yes. And it, it's hard to turn around. I mean, like, yes, you can cut costs, you can lay off people and, you know, right size your inventory, and that's all well and good. But at some point, even like, you know, let's see how they do at holiday. Right. And then if things really slow down from a macro perspective, that's going to be the real risk because how are they going to drive the top line? And, you know, to a certain extent, there's only so much you can do. There might be some room left. Right. But I still would like to see some improvement on the top line to see that there is actually a turnaround in process. I mean, Seba, what do they need to be? And I'm thinking, I just recently walked into a Target and I haven't been in one in a while. I mean, and they have done a major redo in those stores. And I'm like, Wow. Yeah. Uh, and it certainly. I believe the word attention. you're looking for is Woa. <laughs> so what is what is you know the Bed Bath and Beyond of 2019 need to be or 2020 need to be? I think like as you were talking about before, it just has to be easy to shop, fresh. I just feel like it's still in the mindset of being. It, it doesn't have. I feel like Target's in, like reinvented itself as a place that young people may want to go to. Right. Young meaning like millennials and right. Gen Z. And I don't feel like Bed Bath has done that. And tapping into the home in a big way, which yes. Bed Bath and Beyond has a ton of home stuff. But you're often yes. like, like I said, help it me has a ton out. of home stuff. But now you can get a lot of that home stuff elsewhere, and they're introducing private yeah. label. But again, you have to spend money. To market it, and it has to it has to resonate, and they you have to get the people to get into the store first, or they, it's upset. they don't advertise beyond the coupons, right? Um, I believe do they're they? starting to, but okay. they do marketing, they do digital marketing, but I'm not, I don't see it as much as you might see the other players. Certainly not as much as Target. Yeah. Well, right. and I think it's funny even to read. You know, Donald Moore has our story, the Bloomberg News story. Uh-huh. It says Bed Bath Beyond sales dip tenth quarter, but turnaround promised. I mean, it, it sort of keeps coming, but. Part of what's been going on is they've had some management changes. I mean, yes. they've had well, that's only within out, the last, right? let's say, six months. Max. Right. They did not. They were hesitant, and they sort of forced out their management team. Yeah, because this was sort of like an activist type right. situation. Yes. Right. So yeah. the, the the question you have is, you're an investor. Is let's say they announce the CEO. There's a lot of uncertainty as to what he or she might do, and they usually right. are given a year to turn this around. Right. So. I would be surprised if you see any, you know, real improvement on the top line anytime soon because they're going to have to come and assess the business and try to figure out what they think they should do. Because they got an interim CEO, mm-hmm. uh, Mary Winston, but yeah. presumably someone else is going to come well, in. Well, might have from a different strategy, right, right. and how long? How will that be to actually implement? You know. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take a while. Well, Stock's down 11% this year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is, like, you take a TJ Maxx, right? And there's right. stuff all over that. It's yes. not organized. But, you know, that treasure hunt idea, yeah. like, and you kind of know where things are generally. Right. You know where to go. And I feel like you don't get that's that That's a branded feel. thing, right? Yeah. You go into TJX, like, maybe I'll find a great brand. Like, I'll find something. Yeah. Right. Here, you're not necessarily going for that. You're, I'm going for sheets, generally, or right. towels, or kitchen stuff. And so... 
You're not looking for a treasure hunt. You just want to find it. Back in the day, TJ Maxx was our destination. Also, Marshall's for good cat T-shirts. Yeah. That was a uh, that was our treasure hunt. <laughs> All right, for the teenagers, they love it. Uh, but yeah. you're right. I mean, it is, and they've sort of made it cool in in a lot of ways. Right, they made like the Marshall's experience. And, yeah. and even if you look at their advertising, it's always like young people looking. Yeah. You can get this great outfit and. I do think of Bed Bath & Beyond as kind of a convenience store. Like, if you're yeah. all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my God, I have guests coming out. I yes. need some towels. Like, you can go there, and you know you can you get can. something. You can, but in today's world with Wayfair and Amazon and Target, Correct. it's really difficult. You really have to have something that either is a compelling price or like that much better. There's too many candles, too. What's with oh, the yeah. candles? <laughs> right. There's always candles. Yes. All right. Yes. Seema Shah is our senior consumer <laughs> analyst. You. We always have a great time with her at Bloomberg Intelligence. And Perma Bear, Carol Masser, on Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> if she ever goes missing. Thing, just look at her local uh, Bed Bath & Beyond because she's probably just wandering around complaining about the candles. Stock is down about seven-tenths of a percent right now, so it's, it's moved a little bit lower. Sorry, sorry. I'm just putting it out there. There you go. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Eric Marshall is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. He's Director of Research and Portfolio Manager at Hodges Fund. Based in Dallas, $1.5 billion in assets under management. Nice to have you here with us. Good to be here. So, interesting day. Certainly is. The news flow continues out of Washington uh, and also on the economic front. And that's worrisome to investors. How do you see it, Eric? Well, I do think we have a little growth scare here underway. Uh, you know, at the Hodges Funds, we have a, a team of 10 uh, people on our, on our investment team that are spending a lot of time talking to company CEOs and CFOs every day. And we certainly have heard over the last couple quarters that the you know, just trade uncertainty is starting to affect supply chain and, and is having an effect on some businesses, but not all. And I think one thing that's important to put in perspective is only about 15% of our economy is tied to manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So I think inevitably, uh, if things don't get resolved soon, this could be a, just a transitionary period where supply chains are readjusted. And maybe you get a slowdown in the industrial side of the economy. But we think the consumer and consumption is doing relatively well. And we, we're not overly concerned about a recession at this point for when talking to the companies that we talk to. And what would get you concerned? Where would you start to see, looking beyond industrials, where would you start to see uh, that kind of play through? You know, we see news from Delta today Mm -hmm. about their costs going up, and you sort of wonder whether that starts to play through. Where, Where would you see it first? Well, inflationary cost pressures would certainly be one area to, to, you know, be concerned about. Uh, But I think if you started to see uh, liquidity in the capital markets start to dry up, which we're very far from that, interest rates are coming down, not going up, uh, I think that would be something that could really curtail growth in a meaningful way. Uh, but I think uh, inevitably the consumer is doing pretty well right now. Unemployment, um, uh, you know, is at extremely low levels. I think 
the, in a lot of cases, companies aren't doing as much hiring as they would like to do because they can't find enough people or enough skilled workers. But those are all things that we're paying attention to. Have you been making purchases of new or adding to positions within your portfolios? We, we are. And a couple areas, especially within the small cap space that we like right now, are things like home builders. We think uh, some of the, the small home builders like a Century CCS, uh, that is kind of an entry-level uh, home builder, uh, is facing a lot of very favorable trends right now. It's up 75% this year. So you are adding? We, we would add to it here. Huh. Um, and that, that's a stock that you, if you look at it over the last two years, it's really, you know, it really sold off at the end of last year. That's one reason that you see the home builders. I think the home building mm. index is up something like 40%. We also like some of the ancillary suppliers to the home builders, like Owens Corning, mm-hmm. which is a provider of uh, shingles, roofing shingles. Also a big move up this yeah. year. And uh, Eagle Materials, which makes cement and wallboard. Uh, EXP, that's another one that we think is really facing very nice year-over-year comparisons mm-hmm. here in the second half of the year. Well, and just to point, I mean, Owings also took a beating last year, but the fundamentals, do you think, support the growth going forward? Yeah, we see the end market demand relatively good. And the things that are really driving the housing market right now are really household formation, the demographics of the, the millennials, uh, employment trends. And overall affordability, with mortgage rates coming down, uh, entry-level homes are becoming much more affordable than they were a year ago at this time. All right. So right there in your backyard in Dallas, you've got Texas Instruments. Heard of them. They're a big (laughs) chip maker. Uh, You like chips uh, at this point. Uh, Tell us why. Yeah, I think within the uh, the technology space, we think semiconductors offer relatively good valuations right here. And one that we like in particular is a company called Skyworks, mm-hmm. which is a uh, a small cap analog uh, RF uh, company that's really tied to the build out of five G. Uh, they sell both to the handset manufacturers, all major six, all of the major six handset manufacturers, as well as a lot of base station equipment. And as we move to 5G uh, and use a, uh, a broader amount of spectrum, we actually, the spectrum goes much shorter distances. So you actually need about 20% more RF yeah. uh, filters and transmitters in that equipment. So we think that there's a secular growth driver behind their business that they should continue to do well, take market share as these chips become more and more complex. It's interesting to look at Skyworks because they're up about 12.5% mm-hmm. this year. The SOX, the semiconductor index, is actually it's up 32%. So it looks like a, a divergence there, so maybe some uh, room to run. You also like a, na- a name that plays in the cloud um, space. We're talking about Upland Software. This, too, has had a, a really great run this year. It's up about 37%. What's the thinking on this one? Oh, this is this is a great little company. It's kind of underneath the radar. They're based Last out of Austin. Years, it has just taken off. And they're really a great uh, roll-up story. They have a very seasoned uh, management team there that has done this with two other companies, one being BMC Software and uh, – and uh, we think this is a, a company that um, will continue to grow 
at easily double-digit rates, regardless of what happens in the economy, <coughs> and they have a lot of uh, operating leverage in their business. But they're basically buying up a lot of smaller software companies and then implementing them onto their cloud platform and have proven to do this in a synergistic way that's been very accretive to Ernie. So, And it's all about kind of for a company, right, to just manage different programs and so on and so forth within them, right? That's what they're doing. Yeah, it's it's multiple software applications that they're they're implementing. Uh, but this is a management team that is a really understands software and are really good allocators of capital. And so we think that this is one that should compound returns at double digits over the next few years and uh, really trades at a very reasonable yeah. multiple compared to other software companies. All right. Great stuff. Love talking names with you. Eric Marshall, Director of Research, Portfolio Manager at Hodges Capital Management. They're looking after about $1.5 billion down there in Dallas. He was here with us in New York City today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.